to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2 on page 268 of the Church Bible. Last time I was preaching here, I preached on Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to continue looking at the book of Ruth today. We'll look at all of Ruth chapter 2. And at the end of chapter 1, Ruth and Naomi, two of the main characters, are in a desperate plight. They're two widows. One's a foreigner in God's land. The other is disgraced. They've no one to provide for them, no one to protect them. They're destitute and helpless. The family line is about to be wiped out. There's no one to buy their land. There's no one to preserve their inheritance. There's no one to carry forward the family name. There is one ray of hope. Can they find a relative to buy the land and to marry Ruth? To keep the land and the family, to carry on the family name. They need a redeemer. That's their only hope. In chapter 1 they've returned to Bethlehem. The barley harvest is just beginning. The men are out in the fields cutting stalks. Coming along behind them are the women. And they're tying up the, the stalks in the sheaves and putting them on the carts. And behind the woman, the poor people of the town are coming along. And they're allowed to glean. They're allowed to, to pick the leftovers. What's been left behind. What's fallen. What remains. The poor people of the town are allowed to come and glean. So we read from the start of Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech. A man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi... Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, She's the Moabites who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather amongst the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the girls. I told the men not to touch you. Whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my lord, she said. 
You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant. I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At the mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all that she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she'd eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she replied, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabites said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finished harvesting all the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So, Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. We end our reading of God's word there. The boys and girls will come up to the front. I'll speak to them for a few moments. Please turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. Page 268 of the Church Bible. Ruth chapter 2. Bonnie Tyler sang the song Holding Out for a Hero. She wrote that song during a difficult period in her life. She's in the midst of an abusive relationship and she sings, I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. He's got to be strong. He's got to be fast. He's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. Ruth and Naomi need a hero at the end of chapter 1. They're back in Bethlehem. They're in a desperate plight. Two widows. One a foreigner from a despised nation. The other disgraced. No one to provide for them. No one to protect them. They're destitute and helpless. The family line is about to be wiped out. There's no one to buy their land and preserve their inheritance. No one to carry forward the family name. They need a hero. There's one ray of hope. If they can find a relative willing to marry Ruth, willing to buy back their land, they'll be provided for, protected, the family name preserved. They need a hero. They need a redeemer. They need someone to turn their lives around. They need someone to make them full again. Someone to make life pleasant again. And in chapter 2, we meet their hero. 
we meet the Redeemer. I need a hero. It's a cry of men and women all across the world today. People are looking for a hero. People are looking for someone or something to lift them out of their misery, to turn their life around, to break the destructive cycles in life, someone to pin their hopes on, someone to make life full and pleasant. I need a hero. I need a redeemer. So often, though, the things that people look to as their heroes and as their redeemers, they're not able to redeem. They're not qualified to redeem. They're not able to turn their lives around. And so they need to move on and find something else. This chapter shows us three things that we need in a redeemer or in our hero. Our redeemer needs to be able to redeem. He needs to be related to us and he needs to be willing to redeem. I want to look at those three things in turn. First of all, our hero, our redeemer, must be able to redeem. As part of God's people, Naomi and her family have some land, fields that belonged to her husband Elimelech. And it's likely that the family had sold this land before they moved to Moab at the start of chapter 1. And so, as things stand now, with no heirs, this piece of land that's been in the family for generations, this piece of land that is her family's part of God's kingdom, it's about to pass out of their ownership permanently. So any redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, any hero, needs to be able to buy back the land. Needs to have the resources to purchase the land back for them. Needs to be financial ability. A little while back, some of our banks needed a bailout, which cost, in total, they estimate, £124 billion. That was the cost of, of securing people's savings in many of our banks. Now, I felt very sorry for those people who had invested their money in Northern Rock and Lloyds and in the other troubled banks. I'd like very much to have been able to help them in the predicament that they were in. But £124 billion? There's not a lot I can do to help them. need to have very deep pockets to bail them out. I haven't the means to do it. I couldn't do it. In fact, it had to be the government that did it. Whoever redeemed the banks needed to have the means to be able to redeem them. Not just anyone could pay the debt. So it is with Ruth and Naomi. Whoever's going to redeem them needs to have the means to redeem them. Needs to be able to pay the debt. We've seen previously in chapter 1 just how dark and bitter Naomi's life had become. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. She'd been living in a foreign land. And then we come to verse 1 of chapter 2. And it's like the bright crack of sunlight breaking through the dark clouds that's been hanging over Naomi. Verse 1. Now... Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. There just happens to be a man in Bethlehem, a man, part of Naomi's family, who's a man of standing. The phrase means he's wealthy, but it's more than wealthy. It means that he's a, 
He's a man of substance. He's a man of noble character. He's capable. He's respected. He had a high social standing. He was influential and powerful. Boaz. Here's a man with the means to redeem. A man able to redeem. Able to pay the debt. His pockets are deep enough. Here's a glimmer of hope for Ruth and Naomi. The Redeemer has the means to redeem. He's able to redeem. The Redeemer must be able to, to redeem. Second thing, the Redeemer must be related. The Redeemer must be related. In verse 20, at the end of the day, when Naomi finds out about Boaz, she's just astonished. She says to Ruth, that man, he's our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. And this is the moment where the plot changes gear. Possibilities rise to the surface. Pieces fall into place in Naomi's mind. She says, here, hang on a minute. He's our redeemer. He's our kinsman redeemer. She uses this word kinsman redeemer. It's a technical term. It's a word from the law courts. From family law. It's a term for a near relative who was responsible for the economic, the financial well-being of a relative. And in Jewish law, in God's law, there were five things that the kinsman redeemer was responsible for. He had to ensure that property never passed out of the family. He had to buy back from slavery any members who'd sold themselves into slavery. If someone was murdered in the family, he was to track down and execute justice on the murderer. If there was a wrong done, such as a murder, he was to receive and make sure that the restitution money was repaid. He had to make sure there was justice in the law courts for his relatives. These concepts they might seem foreign or strange or odd to us, but it was all based on the tightness, the closeness of the family unit, the togetherness, the sanctity of family life in Israel. Family life was the heart of Israel's national life. They were organised according to their families. So God had given this law based on the importance of family. And so if someone was going to redeem Ruth and Naomi, someone was going to give them a hope and a future, had to be a relative, had to be someone from the family. And lo and behold, here comes Boaz. He just happens to be part of the clan of Elimelech. He just happens to be their close relative, their kinsman redeemer. The redeemer has to be able. The redeemer has to be related. Thirdly, the redeemer has to be willing. Has to be willing. Boaz takes two of the boxes so far. He's able. He's related. But will he be willing? What sort of man is Boaz? Look at how he's presented in the chapter. First verse tells us he's a man of standing. It's the idea of wealth, but more than that, he's a man of standing. He's noble, he's capable, he's worthy. He's a godly man. Look at verse 4. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, greeted the harvesters, and says, The Lord be with you. How do you greet other people? Those of you who have people working under you in the office, how do you greet them in the morning? Do you greet them like Boaz? He's kind to his workers. He's concerned for their welfare. He's a spiritual man. He knows that their welfare is dependent on God blessing them. So that's what he wants for them. And he calls out a blessing 
to his workers. Everyday life for Boaz was just saturated with God. Even the workers in the field. He's a godly man. Also, he's a man who notices Ruth. Picture the scene. Big field. His reapers are harvesting. They're going along cutting. And then his hired girls are coming along in a line behind him. And they're gathering up the stalks and they're binding them together in the sheaves. And then behind the, the girls are all the poor people of Bethlehem gleaning. And Boaz comes along and he knows the poor people of the town well enough that he sees, well, there's someone new today. He knows the poor people well enough to notice a newcomer in their midst. He's gracious to Ruth. He says in verse 8, Look, stay in my field. Don't go elsewhere. You'll get everything you need in my field. Verse 9, he, he gives her a place with his young woman. He, as, as a way, he brings her forward from the poor people who are coming along at the back. And he says, you work amongst my young woman. So as they gather up, you'll get the first of the gleanings. He tells her to stay near to them, close enough to get plenty of gleanings. There's great jars of water sitting nearby. It's hot, thirsty work. Boaz says, don't worry about drink. I'll provide a drink for you. Normally, it was the foreigners who drew water for the Israelites. And normally, it was the women who drew water for the men. And here Boaz, in his kindness, he flips that round. And the Israelite men are going to draw water for this foreign woman. He's kind. He's gracious to Ruth. He's concerned for her safety. Verse 9, he, com- he commands his men not to touch her. Not to harass her. These labourers are probably coarse and gruff. They probably weren't too pleasant to the, the poor people who were gleaning along behind them. Looked upon them as scavengers. Especially the foreigners. Those pesky migrants coming along taking our grain. You can hear the angry comments and the retorts. The sniggers, the snide comments. This is an attractive young woman. These men, you know what it's like. You can almost hear the smut. Boaz says, don't. Keep out of it. He's concerned for her safety. Verse 12, he blesses her. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded. Here's a man for whom spiritual talk, concern for spiritual things, just flows out of in his everyday life. Verses 10 to 13, you get a flavour of Ruth's astonishment at this. He says to, to Boaz, I don't deserve this. I'm not one of your servants. And yet you've comforted me. You've spoken kindly to me. Have you ever been on the receiving end of love or kindness. That's just so overflowing that it's a little bit embarrassing. That's what Boaz is like. Ruth is a little embarrassed by just how astoundingly gracious and kind he's been. And it just continues throughout the day. Verse 14. It's noon. It's lunchtime. Boaz, kind, gracious, concerned man that he is, has laid on lunch for his workers, set up a table in the cool, shady area, and they all gather in. Picture Ruth with the other poor people, perhaps sitting in a corner of the shaded area, the table's in the middle, pulls out a tiny packed lunch and begins to open it, begins to eat it quietly. Probably didn't have very much. She's a widow, after all. And Boaz sees Ruth, sitting there and he beckons to her and says come eat with me 
join at my table. And to invite someone to your table in their culture, that was a sign of acceptance, of friendship. The grace continues. And in verses 15 and 16, it's like Boaz has filled up the cup of blessing and he just keeps on pouring. It just overflows. His generosity pours out and overflows. He tells his workers to deliberately let extra sheaves fall down so Ruth can get them. Ruth had a legal right to be in the field. It's part of God's law that the poor people could come along behind and glean, take what, what had been left, what had been dropped. But Boaz here goes far beyond the legal right. Says this man, that little extra drop. This is beyond what Ruth is entitled to, beyond what she deserves. This is undeserved, overflowing, abundant grace. So much so that we're told that Ruth threshes and takes home an ephah of barley. That's 30 to 50 pounds. That's roughly equivalent to a bag of coal that we see sold at the garages. Imagine Ruth lugging this home into the village and huffing and puffing and pecking to get this thing home. It's enough food to feed the two women for at least half a year. At least half a year of provision through Boaz's generosity. And Naomi's just totally astounded by this. Look at verse 19. Mother-in-law asks her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Just astounding grace and kindness flowing out of Boaz. Is the Redeemer willing? Well, look at Boaz's grace. Look at his kindness. He's a provider. He's a protector. The Redeemer must be able to redeem, he must be related, he must be willing to redeem. And Ruth and, Bo- and Naomi have found their Redeemer in Boaz. He's able to do it, he's the means to do it. He's related to them, he's in the, the position to do it. And all the indications are he will be willing to do it. He's a man of grace. But what about you and me? Where can we find our hero? Where can we find our Redeemer? Where can we find one who's able to save us and redeem us? Where can we find one who's not only able to do it, but related to us to do it, qualified to do it? And where can we find someone willing to do it, to save us, to redeem us? There's only one who's able to save us. There's only one who's related to us and so in a position to save us. There's only one willing and gracious enough to redeem us and Boaz is a picture for us of him Boaz is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and of what he's done for you and me Jesus is our redeemer Jesus is our redeemer is Jesus able is Jesus able to save and redeem us we have an infinitely high price to pay You and I, all of us, have sinned against an infinitely glorious God. That makes our sin infinitely heinous, infinitely awful. Jesus' own illustration of it was, when other people do us wrong, it's like they owe us a debt of a couple of hundred pounds. The wrongs we do against God are like a debt of millions upon millions upon millions of pounds. High price is to be paid, and we are totally, 
unable to pay it. We are bankrupt and have nothing to pay this debt with. We might try and offer him the good things that we've done in life. We might say, look at the respectable family I've raised. Look at the moments where I've been kind and generous. Look at my lifelong church attendance. These things can't pay that debt. These things are like filthy rags. They're tainted by our sin and by our selfishness. God doesn't want them. And even if he did want them, they wouldn't cover the debt. They won't meet the debt that we have to God. It's an infinite debt. Picture trying to fill a hole that has no bottom. No matter how much you shovel in, that hole is never going to be filled. And you can shovel stuff in all your life. But in reality, the stuff you're shoveling in is nothing but air. Nothingness. And so even if the hole had a bottom to it, the stuff that you're shoveling in won't fill it. Trying to fill a hole that can't be filled with something that won't fill it. That's what our lives are like before God. Our debt is infinite. And we try to pay that debt with things that are filthy and disgusting to God because of our selfishness and our sin. Our good works don't pay the debt and the debt is infinite. We're in a hopeless position. But Jesus is the Son of God. He is the infinite, eternal God. And he paid that infinite debt by his death on the cross. His infinite, eternal blood. His death on the cross was the high price that he had to pay. And because, and only because he is God, he's the only one who has the means to pay our debt before God. Is he able to pay? Yes. He's the only one able to pay. He's able. But is he related to us? The Redeemer has to be one of us. And he is. Our King Jesus was a man like you and me. One of our race. God and man. Born of a human mother. Human tears like us. Longings like us. Hunger like us. Thirst like us. Yet without sin. Without sin. Human blood pumped through his human body. Human thoughts went through his human mind. Man like us. But also God. Able to redeem. He's related to us. Part of our race. He's qualified to redeem. And since he's one of us. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us. That he's a merciful and gracious high priest. He's a merciful and gracious advocate for us. One to speak for our cause. I'm sure you heard the news and followed <clears throat> the news this week of the arrest of Oscar Pastores. The uh, Paralympic athlete. Charged with murdering his girlfriend. And if he's going to get off that charge, he needs an advocate. He's in danger of imprisonment. He needs someone to take a stand for him. Someone to argue his case. Someone who knows him. Someone who knows the legal system. Someone who's sympathetic. Someone who's going to speak for him. An advocate. Someone to speak on his behalf. And since Jesus is one of us, but also God... He's our advocate. He's the one who knows us. 
He's sympathetic to us. And he can speak to God for us. And when we come to him with our prayers, when we say, Lord, I'm being tempted. Lord, I need help for this challenge in family today or this challenge in work. I need patience. I need grace to deal with such a person. He says to us, I understand. I know. I was tempted in every way just as you are. I'll ask God to do it for you. And actually, he does much more than just take our prayers to God. Because he knows better than we do what we really need. Takes our prayer and it's like he polishes it up a bit. Takes out the things in it that aren't pleasing to God. And the things that aren't according to his will. And he adds to it the things that we do really need. And he gives it to his father. And he signs it in his name. And he speaks for us on our behalf. He's our advocate. He's one of us. Is he able? Yes. Is he related to us? Will he do the job for us? Yes. Is he willing? Is he willing? He's abounding in steadfast love and mercy. He's not willing. He's yearning. He's longing to redeem you. Like Boaz, he notices the poor and the oppressed. Maybe this morning you feel unimportant and insignificant. If you're his, he notices you. The king of heaven takes note of you. Maybe you're widowed. Maybe you're lonely. The king of heaven takes note of you. He notices the poor and oppressed. He's concerned for our welfare. Maybe you're concerned for a loved one. They're weak, they're frail, they're in danger. Jesus is more concerned for their welfare than you are. Our King is concerned for our welfare. Maybe you're in poor health. Jesus is concerned for your poor health. In the midst of exams and studies and coursework, he's concerned about your studies. He's concerned about your workplace difficulties, about the people that you're having trouble with. He's concerned to do his people good. Not just is he concerned for our welfare, he gives us what's best for us. He hears and answers our prayers because of his concern. It might take a while, it might not be in the way that we want, it might seem uninterested, but remember Naomi. It all seemed dark and bitter and empty. But big doors swing and small hinges. Who knows what small hinges God is working in your life. What seemingly small, insignificant events he's arranging in your life. And he's going to bring together and transform everything for us. He gives us what's best for us. And it's all undeserved. It's all undeserved. This is in contrast to Ruth. Ruth had behaved worthily to Naomi and her family. And so to Boaz and the family. She had behaved worthily, but we haven't. We haven't behaved worthily. We don't deserve the least bit of kindness from Jesus. We deserve only anger and wrath. But he gives us it. Undeserved kindness that pours out and overflows in abundance. And it's certain, it's certain and definite and sure because it's covenant kindness. 
He has bound himself to us by promise. He has promised to bless you. And he signed that promise in his blood shed on the cross. And because of that, because he's chosen to do that, he must bless his people. Think about that. He must bless you because he has bound himself to us. King of kings with all grace that just pours out and overflows in abundance has bound himself to us and said, I must bless you, my son, my daughter. As we close, child of God, we need a hero. Here is our hero. He's able to redeem us. He's related to us. He knows us. He's willing to redeem us. Won't you trust him? Won't you look to him to provide? The difficulties of this week, won't you trust him? Like Ruth, won't you trust him and his provision rather than wandering off into some other field, the field of our own efforts, the field of trying to sort things out ourselves? Won't you trust him as your provider? Leaves us with a challenge. Will we be men and women like our Redeemer? Jesus is our Redeemer. But Boaz shows us what he's like. He's a man that showed grace and kindness to the undeserving in the ordinary everyday workplace. In the fields he showed this. Will we show grace in our workplace? In the everyday situations we find ourselves in. Will we be like Ruth? hard-working, diligent, gracious, caring, will our lives so display the grace that we receive from King Jesus that people will stop like Naomi and say, where did you get that? Whose field are we in today? Will our lives so show his grace that people look at us and say, who has blessed you? Something to pray for this week in our own lives. That our lives would show his grace so clearly that people People will be stopped on their tracks. If you're not yet a Christian, you need a hero. You need a redeemer from your sin. Someone to bring you peace with God. Here he is. Here he is. What a companion. What a treasure. And if this morning you felt a stirring in your heart, you thought, I want that. I want to know Jesus, my redeemer. Take verse 13 and make it your prayer. Jesus, let me find favour in your eyes. Let me find favour in your eyes, my Lord. And when you come and say that, he comes to you and he speaks kindly to you today. Even though you're not one of his servants, just as Ruth wasn't one of his servants. So won't you plead for favour? Won't you stay in his field and receive his blessings? Won't you acknowledge that you're unworthy? Reward and blessing comes from seeking refuge under the wings of the Redeemer. What a wonderful Redeemer we have. Won't you stay close to him? Amen. Let's pray, Lord God in heaven. You are the one who counts the stars, who gives a name to each and every one of them in their in, in, in their multitude. 
You're the one who covers the heavens with clouds and sends rain, makes the grass grow for the animals that they might have food. We praise you for how much more do you provide for your people. Your loving kindness, your grace that builds up your church, that brings back the outcasts, that heals the brokenhearted, that relieves our sorrows. And Lord, we pray that you would deepen our experience of your grace, deepen our knowledge and experience of the loving kindness of our Redeemer. May we know the experience of fellowship with him, the one who is one of us, the one who knows us and knows what we're like and knows our struggles. May we know that we have one who speaks to you for us. May we not doubt in the riches that he has to bless us, the, the, the infinite worth of his blood to forgive our sins so there's no condemnation for us. Lord, bring home to us who our Redeemer is, that we might love him more and that we might show forth what he's like, that his grace and his riches would shine out of us into the lives of the people in our everyday work. Lord, for any with us this morning who as yet haven't tasted the sweet glory of our Saviour and Redeemer, today may you open their eyes to see him in all of his splendour and glory, the one with whose death covers all sin, the one who knows us and who sympathises with us, the one who pours out grace upon grace upon grace to his people. May they come to know him today. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.